Hello, friend. Welcome to Mr. Rewatch, your Mr. Robot recap podcast, brought to you by a stand-up comic and a depressive hacker. I'm Devlin. And I'm Aaron. Uh, what have you been up to uh, lately? I, I guess if you're just listening to the show, it's not really obvious, but we record a bunch of them all at once, so this is the fourth episode that we're recording, and I just, like, I'm not up to that much stuff, so I'm out of ways to answer this question. I'm going to need some time to recharge. Maybe we should stop asking this question. Maybe it's not a useful question. Well, in that case, maybe, maybe let me ask you something different. So we've been highlighting um, some of the music in this season because it's really excellent. The soundtrack is really excellent. Especially in this season. What's the song that you wanted to point to? Yeah, there's one song in this episode that I really like, actually. It's by a, a band that I think is, is local to Toronto, or at least a Canadian band. And they make music that sounds electronic, but they actually make it by doing stuff like smashing filing cabinets and using like toy phaser guns and stuff like that. Uh, the band is called Holy Fuck. The song is called Lovely Allen. <laughs> is episode three of season two, and it starts off with a flashback scene. There are a lot of flashbacks in this season, huh? Yeah, and so um, it's Christmas time. How do you know it was Christmas? Uh, well, the music in the background is uh, It's a Holly Jolly Christmas. <laughs> oh, there, there's also Santa in the frame here? Yeah, like a Salvation Army Santa, I think. <laughs> okay, yeah, maybe it's Christmas. It's, uh, it's Christmas, and uh, in this scene we have Romero and Mobley. Yeah, it seems like they have some history together. It seems like they do, because Romero is giving Mobley a walkthrough of the pretty grisly history of the F-Society headquarters. And grisly it is. Everyone who's ever been in that space has met some truly unfortunate end. One has to wonder if that will happen to the current occupants. Ooh, foreshadowing. <laughs> What's foreshadowing that comes after the thing has already happened? Post-shadowing? Perhaps it's post-shadowing. For umbraing. <laughs> <laughs> We get a little bit of, we know, um, we learned in an earlier episode that Romero had done uh, a little bit of time in jail. Um, he says here that his cellmate was the last owner of the place, and he thought it was cursed, but, like, it could be a pretty good space to rent out to <laughs> Mobley's guy. Interestingly here, Mobley is there for the space, but he's really there for Romero. He's recruiting him. And it seems like initially Romero kind of isn't trying to hear any of that. Romero just wants a way to pay his bills, I think. Well, he's already kind of went to jail, so he knows that these are kind of high stakes. Um, but Mobley's really interested in him, and he's interested because he says they need a freaker. Yeah, I think that what they're referring to there is a phone freaker, which is kind of like uh, a progenitor to hacking, where you could um, kind of like manipulate phone systems by putting in specific inputs to them. It's hard to describe, but... It doesn't really seem like something that would be very useful in modern times, so I kind of wonder if they're just using it for a buzzword in this case. Maybe, because it does sound like something uh, hackery, <laughs> I guess. Yeah. Um, Romero's more interested in making some money off the property, and Mobley assures him that what he's proposing will pay everything. The first time we see Elliot in this episode, um, he, his head is bandaged up again, so Mr. Robot's, I guess, back to his old antics. He is on the phone. Uh, he's talking to Tyrell. 
and he sees this as an opportunity to get as much information as he can, but Tyrell says that it's not a good idea for him to disclose his whereabouts. So we're left in the dark on that. This conversation creates more questions than answers for us, uh, because he also says to Elliot, don't tell me you're having second thoughts. It kind of hints that they've, um, they've been working together for a while, I think. And that there's something else that's in the works, but what we don't know. So more questions are raised here, and that's when Mr. Robot hangs up the phone. We know here for the first time that Mr. Robot also sees us, so he's also through the fourth wall. And then uh, Elliot hears on the news that uh, Gideon has been killed. What do you think, uh, how do you think he interprets that? I think there's some guilt on his part because he had an opportunity to help Gideon that he didn't take. I'm also kind of reminded of um, Shayla, where it kind of is people who are close to Elliot who are experiencing the negative consequences of his own actions. Yes, and even though, I mean, he makes the choice he thinks is right to make in the moment, there are terrible consequences for these other people and he's left to live with those. So that is reminiscent of this, where you know he may feel internally his body count is rising. So we realize this is a bit more of an information-dense episode than some of the other episodes in season two. I've got a lot of notes to go over. Yeah, so we got a lot of things to walk through, and a lot of short scenes, too, that help move the story along. So we're going to try to minimize our cutting back and forth, but there'll be some of that as we go. Um, Mobley decides he's going to go to visit Romero at home, and that's when we learn that Romero lives with his mom. Aww. His mom is pretty sweet, to be honest. Yeah, it actually seems like a pretty nice arrangement. <laughs> um, she doesn't know where he is, um, and so Mobley goes um, to look for him, and he finds, because he's got this side THC products uh, business. <laughs> Pharmaceuticals. <laughs> uh, High-end pharmaceutical uh, business. Um, so he notices a smell right away, um, or we think, I think we're supposed to think he notices a smell of the plants right away, but what he actually finds is that Romero's been shot dead. Yeah, which is probably pretty distressing for Mobley because they've just established that they kind of have a, a longer history than most of the F Society members. Yeah, and I would take Mobley as a sensitive soul too, so I think this is, this is pretty shocking. This is the first, is this the first death of a major character? Well, Shayla and Gideon have died, but this is the first death of an F-Society member. Thank you. So that was absolutely the wrong way to characterize it, but it is the first time one of the core F-Society members has been killed. We're going to do a cutaway here. Yeah, this is a relevant cutaway because um, we're going to spend a moment with Dom, who is the FBI agent who's going to end up um, investigating Romero's death. They do a lot right away in her character to give her some texture and backstory. I really, really like how they, um, they show so much of her home life and they kind of show her as being a different character at home versus when she's out and about. One thing actually that kind of uh, characterizes that very simply is that at home she wears her glasses and outside of her home she doesn't. Yeah, or there's even a scene where you see her like curling her hair. Like it's very personal. And you even see her like glance at, I think it's an app for social anxiety. Before. That's so observant of you. <laughs> well, it, she just sees it on her phone before she cuts away to what I know you really enjoy in this season, uh, a conversation with Alexa. I really love that, actually. Do you want to explain what Alexa is for folks who might not know? Oh, yeah. Well, Alexa is just um, like the, what do you even call those things? Like the, the personalized assistant that Amazon offers. 
So Apple has Siri, and, uh, Google has Google, and Alexa has the, or sorry, Amazon has Alexa. Dom has important business that day because they're headed to Romero's house to investigate the killing. When she's there, she stumbles upon some interesting information right away, right? What are you referring to? There's, well, there's a list of names that Romero has. Oh, yeah, the, F the list of FBI agents. Um, like, I, I think that they're, they're really showing Dom as being a very capable investigator right away. Um, she does find that there's a list of FBI agents' contact information, which is, is, is pretty alarming. But um, she also knows that they've been hacked before. So maybe they're just using a previously disclosed list of uh, contact details instead of one that they attacked themselves. And I think that's her perception because she doesn't see it as terribly significant, but she does notice her own name on it. The other way I think in this scene we see that she's maybe more clever than she's given credit for right away is that they notice that Romero's laptop is open and I think they're oh, thinking yeah. jackpot, right? We've got <laughs> access to all this guy's stuff. They know he's done six years for what they describe as small-time computer fraud. Um, and right as they go to access it, Dom says, hey, have any of the ports been modified? <laughs> Which is very opportune or good timing, I guess, because she says that right at the moment that the computer explodes. So it bursts into flames, and that treasure trove of information they thought they had access to is now gone to them. You know, maybe this would be a good time to explain something kind of cool called um, a cold boot attack, which is not when you kick someone with a cold boot or anything like that. But um, whenever a computer is encrypted, it, it needs to have the password inside memory. Like, it's not stored in a, on a file, on the file system anywhere, but it has to be stored in memory just so it can encrypt and decrypt data on the fly. So if you were to come across a computer like Romero's that was powered on and had the password in memory, you can literally physically kill the computer and extract the password from memory before it is left, like the, the computer, let us say. <laughs> like literally, like put it in a freezer. Yeah, yeah. Because That's when you when you cool down the RAM, it loses information slower. Huh. Fascinating. I've learned something here in this scene. Ray is back in this episode, and this season really does do a good job of developing characters earlier, I think, and more thoroughly. Um, it's quite a different take than the first season, but I like it here. And so we see um, someone who's hooked up to a dialysis machine, and that's Ray, who's also uh, eerily having breakfast with an empty chair with a full place setting and talking to his dead mm -hmm. wife. Huh. And that, I mean, th there's a parallel there between the way Elliot talks to Mr. Robot. Oh, clearly. And it's interesting because I don't think he has awareness of that, but I think for us as the viewer, we can kind of see that they both are um, perhaps willing to acknowledge um, you know, presences that other people wouldn't. So on a high level, I think there's a parallel there. And Ray is another person where when he comes into Elliot's life, just like Tyrell, he tries to position himself as the same as Elliot. So this is one way that, although neither of them know the other's truth, that it's also presenting as a parallel. <laughs> that is really interesting. Um, so we'll see Ray later on, but this, um, this is just a very brief glimpse of his home life. So the next time we see Elliot, he's hanging out with Leon, as is his custom. At watching basketball. At watching basketball. He goes to buy some drugs off of Leon. We learn that it's, um, I have, it's only Adderall. <laughs> yeah, I think that they're, they're trying to 
misdirect you into thinking that he's starting to use morphine again, but it is actually Adderall. So I wonder uh, what kind of led to that change. Well, and I think this might, I mean, it might be a necessity piece, like that's what he can buy from the people he knows at the time. But Mr. Robot is not happy about it. Elliot swallows like a whole handful uh, of these pills, which I believe is more than the recommended <laughs> dose. Yeah. That's when he raises the idea of a kernel panic. Yeah, a, a kernel panic is, I guess, an interesting way to put it. But um, normally, like, when your computer is crashing or something like that, sometimes your web browser might crash or Photoshop might crash or something like that. But you can also have a lower level error where there's an error inside the kernel itself, which is normally not an error that you can recover from. So what he's kind of saying is that a, a kernel panic is kind of like a crash that you can't come back from. And so that's how he's describing what he's experiencing. And that's, Elliot's had a lot of um, justified paranoia about being followed through this whole series. So we see he's glancing at a man in a suit and a black hat. And that's when they slap a hood over his head and stuff him into a black SUV. Things take a very, very dark turn here. Well, because especially if you contrast with the first season where he's usually persuaded to go somewhere, here he's just flat out kidnapped. There definitely is a parallel between this scene and when Mr. Sutherland kidnaps him earlier. So the SUV um, takes Elliot to a parking garage and they quickly, they strap him into a chair. So this internal fatal error that he's experiencing, uh, it looks more and more serious by the second. Yeah, this is a, a frankly very terrifying scene. It's a truly terrifying scene. So they have strapped him in. There's a red wheelbarrow, and they're mixing cement in it. The red wheelbarrow, um, that's also what he's written on the front of his journal. Yes. And so, um, and some of you know that poem. We should put it in the show notes. Um, the red wheelbarrow, a reference there that I don't, you know, as with everything in this series that we don't fully understand. Um, they start scooping the cement out of the wheelbarrow and funneling it into his mouth like he's like a foie gras duck. Oh, God, that's, that is a horrible analogy. <laughs> Don't eat foie gras, anybody. <laughs> yeah. It's horrible. So they start, they're just funneling it down his throat. He's choking. This is so painful And you can watch. kind of, like, see it coming out of his nose. Uh, and that's when he... I don't know that I want to say he snaps back to reality because I'm not clear what's real and what's not I guess, right now. Yeah, it's not really so much that he's reconnected with reality, but just that he's kind of come down a bit from this uh, stimulant psychosis. Oh, maybe that's exactly what it is. Uh, because he's in his room and he starts vomiting up all the Adderall. And it, it, it is definitely very like realistic looking puke. you got to give the props department. <laughs> it's some seriously real looking puke. Um, that's... I think the inference here is that Mr. Robot is behind the effort to get the drugs out of his system. Yeah, it, it seems like the Adderall kind of helps um, Elliot not to be controlled by Mr. Robot. And the other side to that coin is that Mr. Robot doesn't want him to be on Adderall so that he can continue to exert that control over him. And Elliot wants him gone so badly that he starts scooping the pills he can find out of the vomit and he re-swallows them. I was them. cringing so much when I saw that. This, is, this whole... Um, montage is horrific to watch. We see Mobley's pretty shaken up after finding Romero earlier, and he's traveling now on the subway. Yeah, I guess you would probably always be shaken up if you walked in on your friend's corpse, but especially because they have just um, undertaken this really big hack. Maybe they're afraid that somebody's kind of trying to take revenge on them, or maybe kind of clear up the loose threads that they've created. 
And Mobley's paranoia is really heightened here. There's a group of cops on the same subway car, and he is visibly nervous as they pass by him. Um, we see that Darlene gets on right after the cops get off. Excellent timing, Darlene. <laughs> Mobley is really questioning what they've done because he does think that Romero's death is linked, even though they don't really have any other information yet. Yeah, Darlene doesn't seem to be so phased by it, though. I don't know what would phase her. She's not phased <laughs> by much. Um, the two of them are going to see Trenton at home. What are they trying to do there? I'm trying to figure out what they're trying to do there. Darlene seems kind of mad at Trenton. Uh, it seems like at this point they kind of all have divergent ideas for what our society is supposed to be. I think they do, and I think they all have divergent ideas about what the, what the results of the fallout are. Um, Trenton thought that the money burn was stupid. It, it kind of was in the sense that it makes the, it, it paints a big target on their back in a way. And it is, I mean, I'll, as much as I love that scene, I'll admit it's a bit gratuitous. <laughs> yeah. Right? Um, in terms of actually achieving a goal. Um, they also, they all kind of share their paranoia together. Um, Darlene is trying to assure them it's not Dark Army. I don't know that we really, we haven't seen or heard anything of Dark Army for a little while. Yeah, and Dark Army is really only one, uh, only one kind of bad group out there. It could be the FBI or some other group as well. Absolutely. It could be E-Corp people. It could be anybody. Mm -hmm. So hard to know. Mobley doesn't seem to trust Darlene or Elliot. So they're fraying a little bit where the trust they had in each other is also eroding. And as they move into this next phase, I can only imagine that's going to complicate it. Let's look inside E-Corp for a little bit. Um, Price goes to Angela to offer her condolences about Gideon. That oh, yeah. I guess the, he knew that they worked together for a while. That rings a little hollow after the way he talked about his own colleague's unfortunate death, but okay, we'll take it. He also, this is, I talked in an earlier episode about sometimes I don't know if he's being lecherous with her or not. I like that word because it's old-fashioned and creepy old manish. Um, <laughs> but he asks her to dinner on Saturday night to a very fancy restaurant, which is always a luxury, but especially in this time of cash restriction, a major luxury. And I'm really interested in the idea that she says yes to it. I, at first I was thinking, like, what is Price's goal with this meeting? But I kind of think that Angela herself realized that this... Um, this could have good effects for her. Like, she can also take charge of the situation. I do wonder about both of their goal in this dinner. Um, so he sends a car for her. They go to this restaurant. Uh, apparently, the semifredo is to die for. I don't know what it is. <laughs> I believe it's a dessert. Okay. I was going to ask you, so yeah. I'm no good there. We'll, uh, we'll try to offer a recipe uh, <laughs> later for that. Um, so she's a bit surprised, I think, when she arrives. Um, and of course, she's, she's done her affirmations, uh, affirming her beauty. <laughs> and uh, she's really dolled up for this dinner. There are protesters outside the restaurant. I thought that was interesting. It's interesting that she doesn't give a shit. Yeah, yeah, she just scabs it, I guess. <laughs> uh, yeah, she just does. So um, there are two other men who join them for dinner. And they have, I suppose, a lovely time. <laughs> And then Price asks her to remain behind for one more drink. And then it kind of becomes clear what the ulterior motive is here between them. I think this raises even more questions about it. Because he gives her a piece of information, right? Yeah, it's specifically compromising information about those two men who are joining them for the dinner. 
because what she did not know until this very moment is that both of them were in the room with Terry Colby when the decisions about Sludgegate were made. I love calling it Sludgegate. <laughs> I like trying to say something serious and also say Sludgegate. Uh, at the same time, that's the Washington Township toxic waste scandal, uh, if you have not been listening to earlier episodes, which we just call Sludgegate. So both of those men were just as complicit as Colby. We remember how she felt about Colby. And then he hands her, it looks like a CD. Yeah, a, a CD, I guess, with uh, compromising information. He also outlines their family lives, all the charitable work they do, and he, so in giving her this information, she can blow those lives apart. She kind of, um, it seems like she's not really sure where to go from here. Maybe especially because uh, Price is doing a good job of explaining their family lives and things like that, maybe she's sympathizing with them a little bit. But there's one quote that Price uses just before he leaves which really stood out to me, which is about how um, when you remove emotion, you can succeed. I, I don't think that's how you phrase it, but the, the point is there. <laughs> exactly, and the thing is, and that's also been kind of her, um, her way of going about things for the last few episodes. So we're left with a question of also whether she's fully indoctrinated into E Corp or whether she still holds the ideals that led her there. So she has the information. We're about to see what she's going to do with it. So remember how we didn't trust Ray so much before? for unknown reasons, because his <laughs> dog seems very nice. Um, Ray is meeting with some associate, let's call him. Yeah, I guess that's one word for it. An associate who's been badly beaten. Yeah. <laughs> like, badly beaten. In front of their family, it seems. Yeah, the family's really traumatized. And Ray, he promises to get retribution for that beating, but what he says is he really needs for this guy to get his sight back up. The guy says he's just not capable of it, and this is something to do with the idea of hot and cold wallets? Sort of. Like, that definitely plays into it. But I think that what Ray is doing is kind of similar to what Ron was doing in the first episode. He's running, um, like, a, a tour hidden service is what it's called. And they're having some problems with it. Um, the hot and cold wallet is, is more specific to Bitcoin. So I think that indicates that what he's doing is running an online marketplace on the darknet. But just to clarify about what a hot and cold wallet is, um, when you have like a Bitcoin demon that's running in the Bitcoin network and it has, it has money, it's said to be a hot wallet because you can use it anytime. But also that means that it can be stolen from you at any time. So um, a cold wallet is kind of just a way where you store your um, Bitcoins offline to make it a little harder for people to steal them. But you also need to move them into a hot wallet before you can use them. So it's kind of like a bank vault so you can go stick all your Bitcoin in. In fact, one way that people create a cold wallet is by writing down like their, their Bitcoin private key on a piece of paper. That seems so low tech for what we're talking about. <laughs> well, it's, it's very secure. That's kind of the only way to stay off computers. <laughs> the way that I distilled all of that down was my notes say, Ray's mixed up in some serious shit. <laughs> yeah, that, that kind of summarizes it. And so now we see if he's having trouble with the person who's managing that online presence for him, I guess now we know why he's so interested in Elliot. Back with Elliot, we see that he still is uh, taking a bunch of Adderall, but it seems like it's um, achieving his goal of keeping Mr. Robot out of his life. Yeah, so he's not sleeping, but um, he is enjoying a little bit of peace and quiet, which is something that's been in short supply for him. But his panic is returning, and he still does have some distortions in his perception. So there's a scene where Leon appears to be speaking backwards to him. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I, I really love, well, first off, I love how much Leon talks about Seinfeld, because I'm a really big Seinfeld fan myself. But in this scene, he's talking backwards. 
And this is why I always watch stuff with closed captioning on, because the subtitles are actual. It, it has backward speech, but it's actually correct. So um, I think that we, in our notes here, wrote down what like, the proper correct forward version is. We just spent 10 minutes uh, pausing and transcribing uh, <laughs> the backward speech. So Leon says, the dopest has got to be the betrayal. They play the whole episode backwards. Which is actually true. This is one of the episodes that's in the final season of Seinfeld. Does George also be wearing Timberland boots with the logo and everything? <laughs> yeah, he thinks they make him taller. That's amazing. So I love that like they set it up in such a dramatic way. Um, and it's very Twin Peaks Red Room again. <laughs> um, but that's totally trivial information and very meta. So I it's love that. It's meta because it's backwards, right? And that's the, clearly what they were going for. So uh, nice moment there um, for Leon. Um, the other image we see are three little girls who are wearing F Society masks. And that is super creepy. It reminded me of um, Come to Daddy, that Richard, the Aphex Twin song. Do you, have you seen the video for that? Is that the one where his face is in everyone else's? Yes. He was like the pioneer of face swapping, wasn't he? <laughs> I guess so. What a disturbing trend that's become. <laughs> um, I feel badly. Elliot's really losing it. He's actually coding by hand in his Red Wheelbarrow book. <laughs> yeah, I remember when I would need to like copy an error message from a Windows blue screen of death or something onto another computer, that would be a pain in the ass. So handwriting out an entire uh, kernel panic log seems like a bit of a pain in the ass. Elliot's not holding things together very well, so when he goes to church group that afternoon, uh, they ask if he'd like to share. And his initial take is he says no, and then he goes into a monologue asking if what God really does is helps people. Um, he talks about Gideon, about war, about racism. Um, he comes down pretty hard on religion. He describes it as the drug of hope. And then he asks himself if that was an internal <laughs> monologue. And uh, nope, it sure wasn't. Yeah, this reminded me of um, when Krista asks him what about society disappoints him so much. And he goes off on kind of a long internal rant with the distinction being now that he's actually saying all these things out loud. The other nice touch to this scene is he says, if I don't listen to my imaginary friend, why should I listen to yours? Referring to God. Oh, wow. So, uh, I mean, I like that we still have the credibility uh, with Elliot. Uh, I, no, sorry, I guess we don't. I guess we've totally lost that. Um, but uh, anyway, then he tosses his notebook in the garbage can and he leaves. We do see a couple more interactions between Ray and Elliot in this episode. So we know that Ray is pretty desperate for some help. Uh, and that's help that Elliot can provide. So the way he extends an olive branch here is he is meeting him at a diner and he brings him the notebook he threw away. How did you get that? He explains that, um, I don't know if the right word is pastor or chaplain, but the, the church group leader is an old friend of his. Uh. So he's got a bit of insight into that breakdown. And he tries to humanize this moment. And it's hard to be trusting of Ray at this point, knowing what we know about the other beating and things. But he says that, and he says five years, seven months, three weeks ago, his wife passed away, but he still talks out loud to her. And so that's that breakfast scene he had earlier, uh, talking to the empty chair. It all comes together. He also, uh, he says, you and me are more alike than you think. And who was the last person who said that to Elliot? That was Tyrell, I think. I don't know why it's such unsavory characters are always uh, comparing themselves. I think it's interesting that he says we're more alike than you think, because even he himself doesn't realize how alike they are when they're kind of personifying the people that they've lost in their lives. Because both of them do that, but neither of them know that about the other person, right? 
or maybe does Ray start to intuit that about him? Ray does intuit that. I mean, he may mean it in a more metaphorical sense, I would say, because he does at some point say that he knows Elliot sees someone. Ah, okay. And I mean, he may mean in the fashion that he still considers his wife to be present and so on. I don't think he knows the depths of it. Um, Ray's got a lot of messages about futility, and I don't. I think these are probably set up to motivate him for what he wants Elliot to do, where he talks about how control is an illusion, and um, that's really a, a phrase that comes up a lot in this season. That's a phrase, and that's a theme, right? You yeah. can try to control life all you want, but it doesn't matter sometimes. Um, what else is important about this? He talks about uh, all of life just being a fall. So that you know, you're just kind of stumbling around through the dark trying to make your way in the kind of meaningless, chaotic world. Uh, but that you should always fight for footing. And the overwhelming vibe I get here is that Ray is just priming Elliot so he can exploit these human sensitivities in yeah, him. It, it seems, feels grimy. Yeah, it seems like Ray kind of knows what he needs to take advantage of here. And it's interesting because I still don't, I still don't know why he has so much insight into who Elliot is or what Elliot can do. But I mean, maybe he's one of the people that's been observing him. Um, it's pretty sinister, uh, and I, I get nervous every time he kind of pops into the, the oh, field too. of view. <laughs> so Dom is still pursuing the investigation into Romero's death. I think it's kind of, so she's established, I think, as a nice character, and I think her, um, her warmth feels very genuine, even when she sometimes uses it to get something she wants. Yeah, I think that with some characters, it feels like they're being callously manipulative, but with Dom, it seems more like she's using sympathy in a way that kind of mutually works out for both of them. Well, I think, yeah, it makes people safe to talk to her in a way, or that she might do that in any situation she was in. It just happens to serve her when she's working as an investigator. Uh, I think it's real cute when she offers to roll Romero's mom's joints. <laughs> um, the report back is that they're pretty good. Right. <laughs> Not perfect. Um, Romero's mom's got bad cataracts. Earlier in the season, he, he had talked about um, the medical expenses for her building up. And so uh, Dom offers to get her a glass of water. And the mom says, I don't know where they are. the glasses are. Like, they're in boxes somewhere. She's moving out of the house where her son was killed. And as Dom is, like, rooting around looking for glasses, she finds something very interesting. She finds the poster for that end-of-the-world party that they had at the F Society Arcade. And now Dom is a smart cookie. So she follows the information on that poster. And what does she find hiding in plain sight? She finds the F Society Arcade. And that's the end of the episode, because we don't actually get to see her go in, right? Not yet. So next episode, we'll get to talk about um, all the stuff she finds in there. And uh, we'll have much more for you uh, when we come back for episode four. Thanks for listening to Mr. Rewatch. This episode was recorded in downtown Toronto. And if you enjoyed listening to this episode, we'd ask you to consider donating to the Tor Project at torproject.org. They provide private internet access to people all around the world. I'm Aaron. I'm Devlin. Bonsoir. <laughs>